Thank you. Thank you, choir. If you came only <clears throat> to chapel this morning to hear that, <clears throat> that was, uh, that'd be enough. <clears throat> that was so good. Thank you. This past Sunday was a great day at fellowship. We don't always have great Sundays, but I think this past Sunday was. Well, for the most part, it was a great day. We had a, uh, we had a baptism service in the morning. Several individuals were baptized, but one of them almost didn't make it. And uh, it's never happened to me before, but as I was... Uh, you know, taking the individual down into the water, uh, her head hit the side of the baptistry tank. She was knocked unconscious. She wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. She wasn't knocked unconscious, okay? But I hear this thud, and oh no, you know, <laughs> and I put her under, and then bring her back up, you know, and it happened to be Mark Herbster's youngest daughter, you know, Meredith, and uh, Mark assured me she's doing well today, so I'm, I'm thankful, uh, no concussion, I hope, or anything like that, but I thought it'd be nice to have the technology that cars have that tell you if you're backing up, you're approaching something, beep, 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 you know, if I could hear, okay, maybe someday, <clears throat> but this, this past Sunday was a great day, of course, it was uh, Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday marks the beginning of the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. It is a week that has been uh, come to be called the Passion Week, and that's an interesting uh, uh, term because the word passion means to uh, suffer. And so that last week of Jesus' life chiefly is denoted by his sufferings. And what is particularly interesting in that vein is that one-third of the Gospels is devoted to that one week in Jesus' life. Now, I did some calculation, and when you think about the fact that Jesus ministered here on earth for about three and a half years, the Jews operated according to a lunar calendar, so 360 days in the year. Take that times three, add 180. Okay, do the math. That one week basically represents about half of 1% of the total years that Jesus ministered here on earth. And so I have to stop and ask, why? Why would God give so much attention to that one week out of the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry? Well, this morning I want us to actually look at an Old Testament text that prophesied that week, really, the sufferings that Jesus would endure. And that text is in Isaiah. It's a well-known text, Isaiah 53, but I actually want to look at the three verses that lead up to Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 52, verses 13, 14, 15. You'll maybe know that the book of Isaiah can be divided into two major sections. The first half or so, chapters 1 through 39, is a book that uh, focuses on the warnings to God's people, but then in chapter 40, the tone shifts and uh, the tone becomes one of hope for the people of God. And, and what you'll find consistently in that section is that the prophet pins this hope squarely on someone who's identified as my servant. And this servant would come to deliver his sinful people, but would do so at great cost. He would suffer unspeakable pain and loss, even the loss of his life in order to affect his people's salvation. Now, Isaiah 53, again, we're well familiar with this chapter. It, it is the fourth in a collection of chapters in Isaiah, which are known as the servant songs, the others being chapters 42, 49, and 50. Chapter 53 can be divided up neatly into five stanzas of three verses each, but again, 
I'm making, uh, I'm taking the understanding that chapter 52, 13, 14, 15, that comprises the first of these five sections. This morning I want to highlight, as Isaiah does, three characteristics of this servant, and they are his exaltation, his suffering, and then his cleansing. And so look with me as I read verse number 13. It says here, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. And so notice here in verse 13, the first characteristic of this servant is his exaltation. But a question that might come to mind, and I think one we need to answer in verse 13, is who is this servant? It's he simply identified by a per- personal preposition, my servant. This is a fascinating study through the book of Isaiah. Uh, many times when the prophet speaks of the servant, he's referring to, to the very nation of Israel. God, God, of course, back at Mount Sinai, covenanted with the people of Israel that they would function as his priests to the world. And so in, in many, many ways, the nation Israel served as a servant for Jehovah God. The question we ask here this morning is, is that who the servant is in verse 13 and in chapter 53? Sadly, Jewish rabbis willfully ignore the New Testament record of Jesus' life and ministry, but it is there that we see how Jesus unashamedly embraced both the form and function of a suffering servant. And arguably, one who was maybe the greatest rabbi in his day, the Apostle Paul, he had this to say about the Lord. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. There Paul, the greatest rabbi of his day, says, this Jesus of Nazareth took the form of a servant. But then Jesus' own testimony and actions demonstrated that his only agenda was the agenda of his Father. Jesus would say such things as, My meat, my food, is to do the will of him that sent me. He would also say, I do always those things that please my Father. And in Mark 10, he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And so Jesus, in many ways, is likening himself to this mysterious servant, I think, foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Not only did he speak that way, but his actions also proved this. Remember the night of the institution of the Lord's Supper? There, before they gathered around that table, the Lord put, uh, grabbed the servant towel and would begin to wash the feet of his disciples. And so we see in his actions that he was indeed a servant, a servant of his father. This morning, as I was thinking through the main ideas of the message, I I remembered this provision back in the Old Testament law, and I didn't really take much time to, to read the details, but you'll recall that under the Old Testament law, a servant could come to a point in his service to his master where he would maybe want to stay with his master. Through the years of serving and 
and working for his master, maybe his affection began to grow and he began to love the master. Well, if that servant agreed to that condition, there was something that would happen, if you recall. They would take him and they would take a small instrument, a tool that that was small, but it was long and pointed at the end. It was often used to to, uh, uh, form holes in leather or something. But they would take that servant and they would put his ear, his earlobe, I assume, on, on a wooden door and they would take that implement and they would bang that implement through the ear of that servant to the door. And I don't know why, you know, that was the way they did that. Uh, Megan, my daughter, who sang in the choir a moment ago, she, she turned 18, and uh, I think her older sister treated her to uh, pierced ears. Uh, so, so they went out on her 18th birthday, and Megan got her ears pierced, all three of them. And so that's really exciting. And uh, wait, you don't have three ears? Okay, so uh, she, when she came back, I said, well, did it hurt? Yeah, yeah, it hurt, okay, so it uh, didn't surprise me. But I can imagine the pain, you know, that, that uh, the servant would have felt as his ear is being uh, driven to that door. What's fascinating about that is that Jesus, as the servant, as the servant, think about his, his uh, uh, type in this. Jesus Christ loved the people he served. Jesus Christ willingly would say, my life is yours. I give my life for you. And Jesus would go not just to a door, and he would not just have his ear pierced, but he would go to a much more significant wooden object, that being the cross. It wouldn't be his ear that would be pierced, but it would be his hands, his feet, because he loved the people that he served and the Father that he served. And the psalmist touches on this in Psalm 40. In verse 6, he says, Sacrifices and offering thou didst not desire. Listen to this. Mine ears hast thou opened. And I often have thought, oh, that just means that the the one speaking said, oh, my ears were open and I I listened and I was obedient. But many would say, no, this is a a reference to that act in Exodus under the law where the ear was opened by the all and showing the love of the servant uh, for the master. And that psalm is applied prophetically to the ministry, the life of Jesus Christ. Notice a couple of things about this servant. His exaltation is what is touched on first, which tells us in verse 13, this servant would be successful in completing his assignment. Now, not all servants are always successful at doing their job. Some of you, we don't have servants, but we have children, you know, and we say to our son or daughter, hey, do this, do that, take the trash, make your bed, you know, and and not always do those things uh, get accomplished. But in the case of uh, the Lord's life, Jesus was totally successful in every regard in fulfilling the assignment that his father had given him. Notice in verse 13, it says, My servant shall deal prudently. That that word prudent is the word that means prosper, uh, to have success. And so this servant would have success. He would prosper in all that he would do. And that, of course, uh, characterizes Jesus' mission as the great servant. And of course, again, Jesus was uh, keenly aware of the work that was assigned to him. And so notice uh, not only that the servant would be successful, but it goes on in verse 13 to tell us that the servant's success would be rewarded. He says there again, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. 
That uh, little combination of words, exalted and extolled, is the exact same expression that is found in Isaiah 6, used to describe in the vision of Isaiah, the Lord uh, there who is said was uh, seated on a throne, high and lifted up. That's the exact expression, high and lifted up, exalted and extolled. And so this is the, this is the language describing how the servant would be promoted and would be exalted to a tremendous place of honor. And that exaltation is mentioned in the New Testament. In Acts 2, Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, would preach how that the Savior had been raised from the dead and exalted to the Father's uh, right hand. The epistle to the Hebrews tells us he is now seated on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And of course, the right hand is this place of honor. And then again, Paul in Philippians will write, Wherefore God also hath exalted him, highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things earth, in earth and things under the earth. You know, the comfort for us this morning is that though our world is moving in the wrong direction in so many ways, we're reminded that one day this servant will reign and rule and we will enjoy that reign and rule. And so the first characteristic of this servant is his exaltation. Verse 14, we find a second characteristic, and this is his sufferings. And his suffering is going to entail a couple of aspects, uh, both physical and then spiritual. But here in verse 14, it says that many were astonished at thee. That is a strange word. We don't use that word much today in, in English, but astonished is, is a strong word. It's an emotional word that means to be appalled or has the idea of being shocked into horror. Somebody named Joseph Merrick, his middle name was actually Carey, and his parents named him, his middle name Carey, after the Baptist missionary William Carey. Joseph Merrick, though, was born in 1862 in England. Now, he was born with a rare genetic disorder known as Proteus syndrome. And at birth, there was nothing noticeable, noticeably wrong with Joseph. But at the age of two, his lips began to swell uh, out of proportion. At age five, his skin became thick and lumpy. And at some early age also, his forehead began to, to uh, protrude, and, and a lump, a grotesque lump, formed on his forehead. And as he continued growing, a notice, noticeable difference in the size of his right arm appeared. His left arm was maybe right, normal size. His right arm was this gargantuan it was uh, grotesque, and he would become a freak show attraction, and pitiably, he'd be called the elephant man. And Merrick began to be taken advantage of by uh, various showmen, and one whose name was Tom Norman would introduce Merrick to his audience. He would say to the audience, brace yourself. He is not here to frighten you, but to enlighten you. And he would go on with other provisions. And one, one man who was uh, in the audience one day, many times the onlookers would be allowed to go up close to where Joseph was encaged. And many of them were horrified by what they saw. One man had this to say, Merrick was the most disgusting specimen of humanity that I had ever seen. And I don't know what the comparison is, but one biblical writer concluded this servant here in Isaiah 52 would suffer so much that his bodily appearance seemed hardly human. 
It says here that his visage was so marred, his appearance so bad that people did not even want to look at him. And when they would look at him at that moment, there would be such revulsion and such horror at what they saw that they would turn away. How was it that the lovely Savior, the lovely Son of God, became the object of such horror and scorn? Well, we could detail the various episodes that led to the abuse of the body of the Lord, Jesus standing before Annas, the Bible says that he was slapped there by an officer. The next stage, the next venue, he's standing before Caiaphas, the crooked and corrupt high priest of the day. While he's there, he's spat upon, he's, he's beaten on his head, he's slapped again. And then he finally finds himself before Pontius Pilate. And of course, there he's scourged, that is, he's whipped And whips in that day were made of several strips of leather in which you'd find embedded in them fragments of either bone or glass. Of course, those leather straps, as they were uh, employed, would, would tear. They would grab into the bare back of the individual and dig into the flesh. Now, the Jews, I guess, for humanitarian purposes, limited the number of lashes to 40, but when it came to a Roman scourging, there was no such limit. So we're not told the number of lashes that Jesus suffered that day before Pilate. As a result, many times the victims did not even survive the whipping. They died. And so the soldiers would beat them, and when they finished, yes, it's true, he did not even look human. People would have been so appalled they could not even stand to countenance him. Back in 2009, a woman who lived in Connecticut, her name was Charla Nash, was watching, maybe she was visiting her friend's place, but she was, was interacting with her friend's pet, and this pet happened to be a chimpanzee. And the chimpanzee, in just a moment's notice, uh, went berserk and attacked Mrs. Nash, grievously mauling her and blinding her, and, and in grabbing her face would tear her nose off and her ears, would, would tear her hands and basically lacerated her face so that she nearly died. And amazingly, she underwent a, a face implant or transplant. I don't know what the right term is. And I remember watching on video that interview. She was interviewed by a news outlet, and the look of that face was, again, so hideous, she, she didn't even look human. Well, this is the prophecy of our servant, this servant, that he would be so beaten that he would be... Uh, a hideous sight to behold. So we know, we could detail much more, of course, the physical aspect of Jesus' suffering, the servant's suffering, but think also briefly with me about the spiritual aspects of this suffering. The suffering would not be physically uh, only, but uh, there would also be this deep anguish of soul for this servant. And though it's not stated explicitly, we do see the cause for this anguish. If you look in chapter 53, verse 6, where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in this moment, uh, again, it's touched on briefly here in Isaiah 53, but when Jesus would would hang on that cross, uh, the Bible tells us that the Father, it pleased the Father to bruise him, and the Father took the sins of the world and laid them on the shoulders of his dear son. 
And imagine what happened at that moment. In fact, there is a, there's an object lesson at that moment there in Jerusalem. At noon, midday, the brightest time of the day, all of a sudden, the daylight disappears. All of a sudden, the city is enveloped in darkness. And for three hours, it is dark as night. Now, why? Why would that be? Would it be that God was trying to protect his, the form, the suffering form of his son? Maybe, but I think it has more to do with what it was picturing. And that is that at that time that Jesus bore the sins of all mankind, this caused a rift between him and his father. And a, such a rift that Jesus was forsaken by his father for that time. And when you, when you consider that for all of eternity past and for all of time up to that very moment, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit enjoyed continuously sweet, perfect harmony and fellowship, that for the Son to be disfellowshipped for those moments in time, there was tremendous darkness. And the Son would have felt this anguish of soul that none of us could ever really understand. And so the darkness was real to the observers that day, but it was real in the heart and the soul of the Savior. The Bible tells us elsewhere that God the Father hath made him the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was your sin, it was my sin that put Jesus Christ, the servant of God, on that cross and causing that break in perfect fellowship between his Father and himself. Well, notice here, finally this morning in verse 15, we've seen both his, um, his exaltation and his suffering, but now we see something here we can call his cleansing. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him and, and will suspend there. This, uh, this term, sprinkling, is, uh, I think, a, a peculiar one. It certainly would be more peculiar to the New Testament believer but it certainly wasn't peculiar or strange to the Old Testament saint. In the Old Testament, ceremonial cleansing was often accomplished by means of this act of sprinkling. Uh, the sprinkling involved would often be uh, using water, and so there would be water, and whether it was a hyssop branch or some other device, they would dip it in the water, and then they would shake it and sprinkle whatever object, maybe people, maybe the altar, whatever. And so oftentimes this was the way that they ceremonially cleanse whatever needed to be cleansed. In fact, uh, God makes a promise that one day in the kingdom, the Jews, when he gathers them back into their land for the millennial kingdom in Ezekiel 36, uh, God says, then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness will I cleanse you. But you know, there was another type of sprinkling in the Old Testament. Another kind of sprinkling was, was mandated in the law of Moses and it was a sprinkling not of water, but it was a sprinkling of blood. And when the, animal, when the sacrificial animal was slain, its blood would be sprinkled on the altar and then on the people. And again, this, this act of sprinkling was symbolic, and it was symbolizing God's forgiveness, his acceptance of that sacrificial animal on behalf of the people and the priest, and, and the cleansing of them. And I think here in Isaiah 52, the sprinkling in view is not the sprinkling of water, but it is that of blood. 
Yesterday, as we, uh, or Sunday, as we had the baptism service, I asked several of them, uh, as they're about to be baptized, would you like a headache or not? No, I didn't ask if they wanted the headache, but I would say, what is it that has cleansed your sins? What has washed your sins away? Is it the waters of baptism? And, of course, they knew, no, no, it's not the waters of baptism. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.5 says, unto him that loved us, uh, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Um, Hebrews 9, 22, without shedding of blood, there is no remission, and implied is remission for sins. And so this is what the Savior, this servant would do. His, his ministration, his ministry would culminate with this uh, worldwide, potentially worldwide cleansing. And this cleansing from sin is notice in verse 51, it, it has been applied to many nations, so that the kings shall shut their mouths, for that which had been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard uh, shall they consider. This, this idea is that the cleansing from sin is extended to the kings of many nations. And the blessing is that you and I, we are not Jews. Many of us, if not all of us in this room, are not Jews. But thankfully, the work of the Savior and the effects of his work uh, extend past the Jewish people to the Gentiles like you and me so that we too can know the blessing of forgiveness of sin and a cleansing of our conscience before God. And that is a message that you and I are, are expected to bring to the many nations in the world. We can tell the nations, we can tell the world, our family, our friends, that forgiveness of sins is theirs. It's available for them. And I hope that God will give us opportunity to do that in light of the Easter season and beyond. May the Lord help us understand even more the work of our servant, this servant, on our behalf. I'll pray, and I believe we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious word. Thank you for this uh, profound prophecy about this servant. Father, we readily see in it uh, the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and even this picture of a servant. Father, thank you that he could cry from that cross, it is finished, full payment uh, has been made. Father, help us rejoice in that as we go from this place, and beyond that, help us to share that uh, very truth with those that we come across. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.